0: Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and all that he has done for us, given us at least 13 epistles in the New Testament. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. Because of him, I believe we exist here, Lord, because of his faithfulness. We ask that you would help us to be faithful uh, to you and to the people around us so that generations that come after us would benefit. And, Father, we just want to be yielded. To your instruction here for many things are difficult to receive when we check ourselves we find that we are wanting but we know you are an encourager just like Paul encouraged the Thessalonica church so we ask for your wisdom your patience with us and your insight in Jesus name amen so Paul's trip to Thessalonica it says you know brothers that our visit to you was not a failure and of course some would be thinking that if he had to write that down but we have to ask ourselves what constitutes a failure. And then verse two, and we'll get into that. Verse two, we have previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. And so he brings up Philippi before he went to Thessalonica, he went to Philippi. Then in Philippi, when he arrived there, he went to a river. When he went down to the river, he found some women who were down there. Now, if there were some women who uh, were Jews or some God fears that would be Gentiles that would also want to be part of the Jewish religion. If there were no more than 10 men in a city, uh, usually the women would get together or some families would get together and they would go down to the river and they would pray and they would talk about the things of God. So that's where Paul went. Paul went down to the river and he met a woman named Lydia. Now Lydia was a manufacturer of purple material. That's what she did and she ended up receiving the gospel favorably and not only herself but her entire family believed and then they were baptized and she implored Paul and Silas and probably the rest of the people that were with him to come stay at her house and so they did and so Paul started ministering in Philippi and as he was going out giving the gospel in Philippi there was this young woman and she was a slave of these wealthier men And she would go out and she would prophesy different things. And she ended up tagging behind Paul and Silas and saying, these men are from God. That's Bill's version, but that's what she would say. And it would be a big distraction. And she was really taunting them as they'd go from day to day. And you could see Paul, if you read the text there in chapter 16, Paul was getting frustrated, So. What is with this woman? I could see him saying that. What is with this woman? Why is she following us around like that? And finally, he had had enough. He said, That's it. Probably stood up, walked over to you, and commanded the spirit that was inside of her, because there was a demon, cast it out. And the demon was cast out. And the guys who owned this woman as a slave, all of a sudden, she couldn't prognosticate. She couldn't prophesy about what was going on in the future. And they got mad. And so they grabbed Paul and they grabbed Silas and they took him to the center of the city where the officials were there and they had them beat and beat severely. The, that's the word that's used in the text. Now, if you beat somebody severely, you think they just have a black eye, you could have a couple busted ribs or bleeding all over the place. You know, you hit somebody on the head and usually if it breaks open, you bleed a lot. So if if you saw Paul and Silas, they probably had blood running over their face, over their eyelashes, down across their beard. They had bruises or contusions. They may have had a couple of busted ribs. They were beat up pretty severely. Their eyes may have been shut. You know, it's just a bad thing. Then they threw them into an inner prison. Now, when they were in that inner prison, and the inner prison means it's dark. It's dank. It's infested probably with lice and fleas and human excrement. It's just not a good place. And it's not a place that you could probably stand up in. Normally those prisons were low, so you could never fully stand up. And then there were stocks that they put the prisoners in. So they chained them to a wall in the inner court. And here it's midnight. What do you think Paul did at midnight? Praise God from whom all blessings. He starts singing. In the prison at midnight, him and Silas and the rest of the prisoners, the text says, they were listening to him. Now, if I were in prison, I don't think I'd be singing. But he's in prison. He's beat up. He's probably suffering under the weight of the injuries that he has. And he decides to sing with Silas. And all of a sudden, and I believe it was supernatural, there was an earthquake. Once this earthquake took place, The jail doors flung open, and all the prisoners had their shackles come off. Now, in an earthquake, I don't think that that's going to happen necessarily in an earthquake, but that's what happened to Paul and Silas. And, of course, it's dark in there, and this is midnight, so there might be a torch, or the torch goes out. And at that particular point, the Philippian jailer, he thought he had lost every single prisoner. And because of that, being a Roman, if you lose your prisoners... They take your life. They kill you. So he was going to kill himself. And he pulled out his sword and Paul said, stop. Now, I don't know how Paul could see him because it would be dark and dank. And and I just don't get that. But maybe he lit a torch of some kind and saw what he was going to do. And he said, don't take your life. We're all here. Everyone is present. And so then the Philippian jailer, he runs in, in chapter 16, verse 30. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your household will be saved. And he ended up taking care of Paul's wounds, dressing them. Uh, His This jailer, his entire family was saved and was baptized, and it was a great thing. God wanted that jailer baptized. That's why Paul got beat up and thrown into prison. That's why the earthquake happened. God said, I want that guy. Now, would you be willing to be beat up and thrown in prison because there's one guy that God wants saved? Would you be willing to do that? Will you raise your hand? I'll go. I'd say Paul was willing to do that. He was willing to suffer anything. That's why he was singing at midnight with Silas and all the other prisoners were listening. I bet the entire jail probably got saved after that. If not all of them, maybe most of them got saved. And so that's what Paul was referring to. And At the end of that, what happened was they found out that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And you can't just beat a Roman citizen without a trial. You have to have a trial. And if you do that, you're going to be in big trouble. You could be tortured yourself for doing something like that. And so the city officials, they were quite alarmed. And they brought them out and said, what can we do? I'm sure they are apologizing over and over. And they just wanted Paul and Silas to leave the city. And Paul and Silas says, oh, no, you have them come and escort us to show everybody that what they did was wrong. And so they did that. They came to the prison. They took him out. They escorted him away. He went to Lydia's house after that. And when he was at Lydia's house, he encouraged them. And then he left. And he told the Thessalonica church that this is what happened, that he was going to have to endure the suffering even in future times. And so going on with this, in verse 3, we have... For the appeal we make does not spring from error. And he's talking here about how he delivered the message to them. First, his, his trip to them was not a failure and that he suffered and was insulted in Philippi and they had strong opposition. He goes on to say, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. For we are trying or we are not trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise of men. Not from you or anyone else as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. And so in these pages here, in these verses, verses three through six, there are eight things that you can look for in a false teacher to see if they're a false teacher. And the first one, the way that I did this is I came up with a little acronym. It is just image, the word image and FTB. Uh, It is the way I did it. And each letter of that, uh, like an acrostic, each letter has a particular reference to one of these words here in the NIV. Like, number one, the impure motives. Somebody who comes into the church that starts teaching in the church, they may have impure motives. They want something, want power, or they want position. Could be money as well. But they're certainly after something that will benefit them. And if you notice a minister coming in and all he does is benefit himself to the uh, the spite of the parishioners that are there, then he's probably a false teacher. That would be the I. Then the M, the man pleaser. Anybody who comes in that just says what everybody wants to hear just pleases the men that are there or the women that are there. That guy is not doing anyone a service. If anyone is giving the gospel, if they're going through the scriptures, They are going to offend. It is just going to happen. You cannot avoid offending somebody. But if you never say something to offend somebody, you're not giving them the true gospel. You're not telling them what bad things lie ahead for those who do not repent. Then there is the approval. So we have the I-M-A approval. They are seeking praise or accolades from the people. They want the people to say good things about them. That is rarely going to be the case with anybody that ever teaches in a church. Um, There may be some good things said from time to time, but most of the time... You've heard me say that phrase before. That people on Sunday they used to go home and they have a meal and they'd have roast pastor, and and so they would they would talk about the pastor. And it may still be the case today in some cases. Well, he said this, and I don't know if I agree with that. And we all have judgments. Patty was listening to a teacher last week, and he said something about the gifts, and we're talking back. I don't know. That just doesn't seem right to me. And it's a good. He's a good teacher. You know, so we're we're having roast pastor, actually doctrine. We're going back and forth on the doctrine and what they're saying, and if it's right, or if it's wrong. And so it's a common thing. We just want to make sure we're not getting into gossip and murmuring and all that kind of stuff. So you have the impure motives, the man pleaser, the approval seeking after praise from others. Then there is greed. If the guy is just skimming off money for himself all the time, chances are it's the wrong guy wrong guy to be teaching anyone whatsoever then there is the error so this is the image the error that which is off kilter just a little bit it's skewed somewhat Uh, when I first got saved uh, I got saved by a guy I think I mentioned a few weeks ago a guy on a radio down in Palm Desert listening to him on the weekend prior to that I was listening to the radio and I would drive back and forth from Palm Springs and I'd listen to Herbert W. Armstrong and he was a cult leader and, but I liked what he had to say about the book of Revelation. And I I was listening to all of that and it sounded so fascinating to me. And then once when I was down at Palm Springs, I opened up this, uh, paper, you guys know what a newspaper is? Yeah, opened up this newspaper, and on the inside it had almost a full page article about Herbert W. Armstrong, and there were problems with it. And I'm going, What? What is that? What's wrong with that guy? You know, and I was getting kind of all offended. And then I found out there was, I didn't know anything about doctrine, nothing whatsoever. And I found out, well, there are some doctrinal errors that he was teaching. And the errors, you know, they, they're just skewed off a little bit. And then, so I went from Herbert W. Armstrong to a Uh, like a full gospel type of church. And in that particular church, they believed in the excessive use of tongues. And I didn't really know what tongues were or how they were supposed to be used. And it was in their statement of faith. And everybody would bust into tongues at one time. And I was just standing there going... This is kind of weird. The teaching is good, but this is kind of weird, the way that they're doing this. And I, I really did... It was an error, you know, and they were just going off a little bit. Everything else was seemed to be good, but this part was just a little bit off. Then I ended up at Calvary Chapel San Diego with Mike McIntosh after that, and that's where I met Patty, and things just really looked up. Got good doctrine, good teaching, good wife. All of those things came to me at that particular time. It was great. There was no error in that. But we can be prone to error. We we want things to be a certain way and we'll read into the text for our own um, benefit. But it's really to our own detriment when we get off an error. And we have to check ourselves constantly. Are we teaching the right things? Do I believe the right things? And if they're not right, we need to change them. So that is the image. Then there's the FTB, flattery. I've done a whole study on flattery before. It's not just the regular compliment. It's you are telling something to someone because you want to benefit by how they treat you in the future. That is the opposite of a compliment. You're just giving a random compliment because you're being nice. You're being a friend. It's good. You're not expecting anything in return. But flattery does just the opposite. They give you the compliment in order to get a favorable return from you in some way. Then there's trickery. Trying to fool people to believe something that isn't true or just a little bit off and the more you raise your voice the more it seems like you are coming forth with power and understanding and you have intent and you know exactly what you're talking about if you raise the tenor of your voice and people oh that was so powerful no it's probably not powerful it's like it strengthens your argument rather than the tenor of your voice You want to make sure that uh, people who are listening to you can understand what you're saying and you're not trying to fool them or deceive them into believing something like gold dust coming down from the rafters and that is the streets of heaven invading our space or gas or smoke comes from the rafters and that's the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory of God coming down. You got to give me a break. That's just deception is what that is and we want to make sure we're not falling for that stuff then the final thing is not to be a burden Uh, the final verse that he gives verse six he says as apostles of christ we could have been a burden to you if the apostles would go from town to town if believers were there it would have been befitting that they supported the apostles but he decided, no, I'm not going to do that. But false teachers would always do that. I need a place to stay. I need some food. I need some income. All of those things. And in the first century, they came up with this book called the Didache or the Didica, And in there there were instructions for ministers. And they were instructed, you can only stay at somebody's house for three days. That's it. Then you have to move on. And so even back then, it was a problem. That's what Paul is talking about here. So those are eight things to look for from somebody who's a false teacher, somebody who's a mooch, somebody who comes in and just takes advantage of the people in the church. He goes on here, and we're going to get a list of 12 things that you look for in a genuine minister. In verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were... Delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So these 12 things that he listed here, and I have them all highlighted. The first one is gentle. The minister of God is going to be gentle, not going to beat the sheep. I remember being cautioned about that all the way back to when we started teaching home Bible study at Calvary Chapel San Diego. Don't beat the sheep. Don't smack them upside the head like, get this thing right. they are supposed to be gentle. Then there's the sharing, not only the gospel, but their lives. They were involved in the lives of the individuals. They shared with them whatever. Paul, you know, he is a tent maker, and he probably had, he had certainly had income coming in, and he probably shared that as well with the people who were, were where he ministered to. And then this idea of toiling, that he actually worked at it. He didn't have everybody else do the work. He was the one working at it. And remember, these are signs of somebody who is a genuine minister. And then he endured hardship. He wasn't unwilling to go through anything that was maybe a burden to him personally, whether he was hungry or he was shipwrecked. You remember Paul was shipwrecked twice. He was bit by a snake. He was left for dead, stoned. He he had to be lowered over the wall. Uh, and escape with his life you know these different things that he was willing to endure this hardship and he did it for the sake of the gospel and then working day and night he wasn't limited in his hours he didn't have banker's hours nine to five you know he, he was any time of day or night remember the one story in the book of acts he was preaching and a little boy in the window up top and he he was Teaching for so long that he fell asleep, I mean, we go forty minutes or forty five minutes it 's like you start catching flies back there, but they would do it for hours at a time. You go to the foreign countries foreign countries, the pastors will be there, and you 'll be teaching for seven or eight hours. Or nine hours and I could see why people lose their voices over there but they're so hungry for the word and here I think that we can become a, a little complacent but he worked day and night and even though the boy fell out of the window and he fell as dead well we could always pray for somebody who falls asleep out of their chair and left for dead we'll pray for them to be revived but he worked night and day and then he was not a burden now he uses this at least two times he was not a leech. He didn't soak off the people and and looked at them as uh, how he could benefit from their lives. And so he he made his own way. Also, being holy or dedicated to God, being righteous, doing what was right, even in the eyes of the people, and being blameless. There's nothing that he could have been accused of that would have set his testimony uh, to the side. And he also, the last three things there... He was encouraging, comforting, and urging proper living. All of those things, all 12 of those things are from verse 7 to verse 12. And that's what a proper minister will do. But then he goes on, and there are four things here which are a natural progression of apprehending the gospel. What I mean by apprehending is you take it up. It is yours and is yours to keep for all of eternity, the good news. It is not that you just simply hear the gospel and you really don't let it have an effect on you. It actually changes you. And this is the way that it changes you. There are four things that have to happen. And in verse 13 it begins, it says, And we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. And so first, the number one thing is people received and accepted the word. If you hear the gospel, you have to receive it. You have to bring it to yourself. You have to make it something that God wants you to have. You apprehend it. The second thing is those who receive the word became imitators of it. So for instance, uh Hebrews 10:25, do not forsake the gathering together of the brethren as is a habit some and all the more as you see the day approaching. You go to church, right? Uh, pray continually. We know that we're supposed to pray continually. We know that we're supposed to be givers. So all of those things you're becoming an imitator once you hear the gospel. You you dedicate your life and service to God to one degree or another. Then <coughs> thirdly, you imitate or join in the suffering. You allow that suffering to come your way. You see that if you were back then, Paul was suffering, Silas was suffering, then you had to say, I am willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. And I'm not... Talking about suffering under the weight of too much air conditioning or too much heat inside a sanctuary or, you know, are the donuts just right or is the coffee warm enough and you can never get it right. That's not suffering. Suffering is you're giving the gospel and people ridicule you. They despise you. They don't want you to speak and, and you suffer under that maybe to the point of some physical abuse like in foreign countries, not so much here yet, but in foreign countries. And then fourthly, it, it says uh, all to keep speaking the gospel. What I mean by this is you go through the suffering, you receive the, go- or you receive the gospel and you become imitators. You have the word with you, but you do this all for the sake of continuing to speak the gospel. That's your motivation. So that's what's going to happen in the life of somebody who gets the gospel, accepts it, imitates it, and suffers for it. Those things and all that it might continue to go out because that's our job from generation to generation. Somebody gave me the gospel, I got saved. I've given the gospel over the years, people get saved. You give the gospel, people get saved. People get encouraged, people get comforted. And we're to urge others to live properly. Now, do we look like somebody who has been saved? Do we confess Christ? Do we grow in knowledge? Do we grow in service? Are we signed up and said, okay, I'm willing. Lord, if you want me to suffer, I'll suffer. That's the question we have to reflect on. That's the application. Verse 14 again says, You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. So imagine that. There are those people that do not want you to speak the gospel or name the name of Christ. Try to um, go to a school board meeting and offer up a prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Chances are you're not going to be able to do that. Now, if they had a prayer, maybe at a school board meeting, and I don't think that they do that very much anymore, you might be able to get away with a generic God, but not Jesus Christ, because that might offend somebody. Jesus is offensive. Let's just put it right out there. Jesus comes along and says, this is sin, and you ought not to do it, and there's judgment if you continue to do it, and you need to repent of that sin, and people don't want to hear that. Well, because of those people who are out there that want to suppress, they want to put down the gospel, not allow it to be taught, like in China, Russia, the Soviet Union, uh, the Muslim countries. For that reason, because they want to suppress it, God's wrath is coming. It is going to be on them, and it is coming. It says that, the last sentence there in verse 16, the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now to digress just a little bit, <clears throat> characteristics of those who bring suffering, they will be people, chances are that you know that are in your community. They're not going to be somebody in a foreign country. You may be familiar with them. They, they don't want you to talk anymore about Christ. If you go to a family, Easter family tradition, um, I think I bring this up every year, be the one that volunteers to pray if you're in amongst uh, fellow believers or unbelievers in a family setting go ahead if there's somebody who does it all the time that's great but you want to give praise and honor to Jesus Christ but there could be some there that don't want to hear it they don't want to hear you name the name or even pray they hate believers and are even responsible for death in some cases Uh, they are displeasing to God in the way that they live They are hostile to all men. They try to prevent the gospel from going out, and they distort the truth and oppose those who speak it, and they are under the wrath of God. That's the characteristics of those who seek to quiet the gospel. They don't want it to go out. Now, the greatest oppressor in this, we know, is Satan. In verse 17, it says, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought... Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Now, as we get older, uh, I'm sure, like me, you can look back and you can see where God said, no, you're not going in that direction. You're going in this direction. I, I can look at several what I would call benchmark events in my life where said God said, no, you're going this way. Well, the same thing, you can look back on benchmark events that Satan said, I'm going to thwart your efforts in this. This mostly happens to me when I try to um, give the gospel to somebody, witness to them about Christ. Inevitably, their cell phone rings. I'm talking to them, it's just me and them, cell phone rings, something important they have to take care of. I always defer, I say, go ahead and take care of it if you need to, and then I start praying, Lord cut off the phone call you know just end it or somebody will come up and they'll want to start talking about something else or there'll be an accident in the street you know i think i had that one time where there's an accident okay there goes the gospel opportunity and and you can tell that these types of things will take place satan comes in he's the great opposer he doesn't want you telling anyone else about jesus christ or the gospel that he has to offer and so we have to be aware of that now what power does satan have who is he and what does he want and why would he oppose paul because he's opposed to everything that stands for god he wants to usurp god he wants to be just like him he wants to rule the universe that's why he tempted jesus to get him to fall god in human form if he got jesus to fall then the earth was his we're going through that in the book of revelation how the title deed the seals uh, to the planet earth if jesus fell that Satan would have had the earth forever. It would have been for, for him alone. But Jesus was able to redeem the scroll. And that was the important thing in heaven. There was silence in heaven for about a half hour before Jesus presented himself and John started to weep in heaven because nobody was coming forward to take the scroll, which is believed to be the title deed to the earth. And so Satan doesn't have power anymore. Even though this is his place where he rules for right now, He will only do so for a short time to come. Verse 19, for what is our hope for our joy or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. I do believe that he also said this about the Corinthian church. They are his glory and his joy. And and so that's what we're supposed to look forward to is when we give the gospel People get saved. They become imitators. They are willing to suffer for the gospel and have it go out farther. If there's a minister that doesn't have that joy, I don't know where he exists. And that's what we're supposed to be involved in, replicating ourselves. Now, with this, I want to, again, digress a little bit. Speaking of God's wrath, in this particular book, it's mentioned three times. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 5. Chapter 5 tells us that we are not appointed unto God's wrath. Now, what is God's wrath exactly? There is this idea of reaping and sowing Uh, during the AIDS epidemic. There were teachers coming out saying, this is God's wrath on the homosexual community. I have a tendency to think more that it's reaping and sowing. They reaped the flesh that they had sown to And they were suffering under that. I think that's most of the suffering that we endure. It's because we do things, we do stupid things, and we suffer under them. And sometimes we jump to the idea of, I'm suffering because God wants me to suffer. No, we need to turn that around. I'm suffering because I was stupid. I I made dumb choices. That's why I'm suffering. That's the majority of the suffering that we go through. Of course, there is the world uh, that is opposed to us. There is Satan. There is the flesh. All of those things get in the mix and Satan does some things that cause us to suffer from time to time. That, that is true. But God's wrath is a little bit different. God, He doesn't do anything, the Old Testament tells us, without first telling his prophets. The nation of Israel was judged over and over and over and they tried to turn around and they did for a little while and then they fell again and God judged them again. They went into... Uh, dispersion twice, the exile once with the Assyrians, then with the Babylonians, and now they're back in the land after thousands of years. You know, you look at that, and and then the way that they were led away from the Assyrians, what happens is they they raped and murdered and pillaged, and they came in, and what they would do with some of the people is they'd put a ring in their lower lip, and they'd tie a ring to a string, and they'd be on a horse, and they would carry that string, and if you fell behind, that ring would pull out of your uh, lip that was there. They are just brutal. They would gouge out eyes. I mean, they would do all kinds of things to the people. Babylonians, same thing. The world in which we live, you know, with what we're seeing right now in, uh, with Putin and Ukraine, and we're really not sure what's exactly taking place. We know that there are war crimes that are happening. This is the lightest it's ever been compared to History. I mean, at Mao, it's believed that a hundred million people he killed of his own people in China, brutally so. And, and so, this type of suffering, it is there, and it can be God's judgment. The Assyrian captivity was God's judgment, the Babylonian captivity was God's judgment. I think we're ripe for judgment in this country. Do I believe it has happened yet? No, I don't think so. I, I think it is it just God's protective hand has been pulled away that's book of romans chapter one he he gives them over to whatever they want to pursue in the fleshly realm and and that's what we're experiencing now we're experiencing this idea that maybe we've fallen short a little bit as believers not doing what we're supposed to do concentrating ourselves especially after the war the baby boom and all of that i'm a baby boomer you know that and all the error that came with that we're reaping and sowing uh, and that's what's causing all the problems in our country. Now if God really wanted to impose his wrath, there would be things like the book of revelation that would happen. Uh, millions of people dying. We going through like I said with the youth the book of revelation. And I asked the kids there I said what's the population of the world? And they they knew about 8 billion people about 7.9 and then you go through the book of Revelation, and it says, How many people are going to die? And at first there's a quarter, and then there's a third, and then it talks about the pestilence, and it talks about at one point people will want to die, and they won't be able to, but how many people actually die during that time? It looks like it's going to be between five and six billion people that will die. Scripture says that God is going to make men more scarce than gold. And, and so what would happen is like if you were in Lakeside you might come to downtown lakeside you might see three people you might see six people you might see you know 10 or 12 but that would be it that is all that would be here that's how many people are going to die there would be death in the streets there there's going to be natural disasters that's coming and you know that that's the wrath of god some people say well no that's going to be a time of satan's wrath well If God wants to institute his wrath, he can also use Satan to institute that wrath. So this is directed by God. We know that it's coming when those seals are broken and the trumpets are broken and the bowls are poured out. It's all coming because God's wrath is here. Well, it's arriving. We can see it, quote unquote, under the horizon. John the Baptist spoke of God's wrath. Matthew chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. When he dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he called them, you brood of vipers, trying to influence friends here, who warned you to flee the wrath to come. And he said, you're under wrath, is what he's telling them. And these are the teachers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then it also says in Luke chapter 21, he saw the wrath and destruction of Jerusalem because of the rejection of Jesus Christ and with Titus in 70 A.D., He says, there will be great distress in verse 23 in the land and wrath against his people or this people. That's what happened in 70 AD. That was God's wrath specifically on the nation of Israel. They tore down the the sanctuary, the temple that was there, got all the gold out and the people were dispersed at that time. And then there was the Uh, A judgment for unbelief in John chapter 3 verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Now God's wrath is on everybody, and those who get saved, the wrath is removed. That's the way it works. But if you tell somebody, I want to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is good news. What's good news? The wrath of God. That's kind of a non sequitur. It really doesn't work so well. It's like God's wrath is coming and he's going to kill billions of people because he's judging them for their sin. That's good news. No, the good news is you can escape that. Well, what if you don't like the wrath and the wrath you you just get hung up on? You see how the world says, I don't like, well, I like the grace of God and all that and his mercy, but this wrath thing I'm not down with. This is not really going to be something I'm going to bank on too much that I'm going to just buy into because you tell me. Now, if you believe Scripture, you see that it is just ubiquitous all the way through Scripture. In Romans chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, it says, For in the gospel the righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so those people who suppress the truth, who don't want to hear the gospel, who don't want others giving the gospel, work at keeping it from going out, the wrath of God is on them. We also know uh, Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So God told us why wrath is coming. It is the judgment of sin and there's so much more that can be said about this but i'm really going to uh, move on but there is evidence that the wrath of god is coming it has been here in the past but it is going to be active before we know it and romans again chapter one talks about men and women abandoning the natural relations uh, for each other and, and turning to the same-sex relationships that's another reason the wrath of god is coming And it tells us in verse 29 of Romans chapter 1, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, which really means stupid or foolish, faithless, heartless, unsociable, inhuman, Uh, ruthless or unmerciful although they know god's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them so this is the reason god's wrath is coming and we have to be aware of that and we have to be able to tell people about god's wrath that is coming that's what saved me i the four i remember herbert w armstrong the four horsemen of the apocalypse He he talked about the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, or the pale horse, and all four of those coming out, and how bad it was going to be. And I, I said, I don't want to be a part of that. And so some are saved by fear. Some are saved by the love of God, but both understand the wrath of God. Both of us are able to apprehend that and communicate it to others. So going back to verse 19, he says, "For." What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So, verse one of chapter four. So, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So Paul couldn't make it himself. So he said, Timothy, you go. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials, you know quite well that we were destined for them. And so he told them, I'm going to have these trials as a believer. Any believer, if they're really living for Christ, they're going to have difficulty in this life. And so he sent Timothy. Now, there's some misconceptions also about suffering. That real Christians shouldn't encounter suffering or trials. There is that view out there, health, wealth, and prosperity the only reason you're suffering is because you're sin remember Job <laughs> the only reason you're dealing with this stuff is because you're a sinner just confess your sin and you know, you'll know you be fine if you believed in God you wouldn't have these problems really Job had them specifically because God said hey Satan come here look at Job go ahead test him I, I hope he doesn't do that to me or to any of you but it, it, it's this idea that we think we're not going to suffer no count on it suffering is going to come your way if you're given the gospel. We're going to suffer anyhow. You know, whether it's... uh hammer toes and bunions or arthritis or teeth falling out or loss of vision. You know, we're going to suffer that way. There's no question about that. As you get older, you see how many more you can chalk up. You just start checking them off one at a time. And pretty soon you get down to the last one and you're going to suffer in death. That's it. You're just going to die. and, and But that's to our glory. It, it's a momentary suffering that we go through for the glory which lies ahead. And I, I guess we're good with that. But this idea that we're not going to suffer and go through trials is a a misconception. It's a heretical teaching. Then there's the error of thinking, God is mad at me if I suffer. Well, it may be discipline. We know scripture teaches us that if we do wrong, God disciplines us and we might suffer because of that. But God doesn't walk around. Maybe you've seen the cartoon, like the hand coming out of the sky with a finger poised like this right against your head. Like God is going to flick your head and go, okay, I'm doing this to you because I want you to suffer. I'm mad at you for doing that. God is gracious to us. He he doesn't look at us as something that just deserves punishment. He's going to just get punished because that's who he is. His wrath doesn't matter. It's going to go to everybody. That's a misconception which is out there. There's an error in thinking that if I'm suffering, God is mad at me or if I'm suffering emotionally or physically or spiritually. Doesn't God love me? Why is he allowing me to go through this? It's not the case. And then, without a good grasp on the truth of suffering, someone's faith might be shipwrecked. If they don't understand that suffering is a part of the life, they might say, where's God? God has abandoned me. God is not with me he does not love me he does not care about me and you fall into the woe is me if your faith is not solid so we want to make sure that our faith is solid verse four in fact when we were with you we kept telling you that we would be persecuted and it turned out that way as you well know for this reason when i could stand it no longer he says that twice I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter may have tempted you and her efforts might have been useless. Now, I don't know if he got a report or he just felt that that was the case, but that's why he sent Timothy. And he says, But Timothy has now come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. So if you have this faith and love, it translates into belief and action. That's what's going to happen. If you truly believe in Christ, those things will follow. Verse seven says, Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we encourage or we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live. Since you are standing firm in the Lord, we can Or how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Night and day. I mean, he's just fawning over the people that say, guys are doing so good. He says, night and day we pray most earnestly that we might see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And so we have three things here that Paul desires from God for the people there. He says, now may our God and Father himself Our Lord Jesus, clear the way for us to come to you. So he wanted to have an increase in fellowship. He wanted to deal with them face to face. Embrace them, give them a holy kiss, so to speak, and just be in their presence and talk with them, encourage them. Verse 12 says, May the Lord make your love, or agape, increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. So that's the second thing he asked for. First was fellowship. The second was an increase in love. And third, may he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So the other one, the final one, is strength to live a holy life, to endure suffering, strength to grow in their faith, all of that. And I pray that all the time. Lord, can I have some more strength? Will you enable me to walk the walk more fully? And that's what Paul was praying for, for the people there, fellowship, love, and strength. In verse four here, or excuse me, I'm in chapter four now. Where was I before? Three. Okay. Yeah, that's where I was. I just noticed my notes here. It's like chapter four, verse one. What? I thought I was already in chapter four. Let's go on. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you were living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know that or what instructions we gave you and by what authority or excuse me, by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So he deals with three areas right here, this instruction. He's reminding them. And I believe he's reminding them of these three areas Because they had problems in these three areas. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And this is all kinds of sexual immorality. It blankets everything. And he says... And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he rejects this instruction, does not reject man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit. So they were probably struggling in the the church of Thessalonica with the city of Thessalonica. Because in the city there, it was a sexually promiscuous lifestyle. The Greeks and the Romans, the way that they lived their lives, they, and, and it was getting into the church, and there's probably some condemnation and guilt going on, and they thought that they weren't living up to what they were supposed to be doing, and and maybe they were following behind, and were supposed to be imitators of Christ, willing to suffer after we've apprehended the gospel, all those things that are going, am I really even saved? Because they're falling to this, apparently. And living a sexually pure life, it, it is going to be Difficult, but it's deviating from God's design for sex, which is one man, one woman in the confines of marriage. And saying no, that that doesn't apply constitutes a rejection of God himself. Now, is this good news? Imagine the society in Thessalonica. Is it good news that you have to give up your sexual immorality? Probably not. What do you mean? I can't go to the local temple to Aphrodite anymore and... Uh, you know, sow my oats, so to speak. Uh, now it's not a good idea. Uh, matter of fact, God's wrath is coming because of these things. And, and so if you say it's the good news, and all of a sudden you sell, tell somebody who's a pagan that they have to give up their sexual immorality, they're not going to be so agreeable so quickly, and people who come into the church to get saved are going to continue to struggle with that. So Paul first talks about suffering, and it is expected. And second, he talks about sexual purity, And the Thessalonians, they were a very or highly sexualized society, kind of like our society. Uh, Pagan worship encouraged sexual immorality. You'd actually go to the temple and participate in it. There was this one guy named Diophanes, and he said that all men need a mistress for pleasure, concubines for daily care of our persons, and wives for bearing children and, and being faithful guardians over our household. So that's what they said. This is what you need. Get yourself a mistress, concubines, and a wife. And all three or multiples of those were available to you. And it was a common practice for the masters in that particular city to use their slaves for sexual purposes. And married and single men were encouraged to go out and hire prostitutes. That was the lifestyle of the people in Thessalonica. Remember, the gospel is just getting there. And then in Athens, in um, centuries prior to this, it is said that they decided to build brothels in order to fund the building of temples. And so everybody was encouraged to go to the brothel so that they could have the temples built. And men were encouraged to have sex before they got married. Sounds like the United States. All of these different things that are here throughout the world, Uh, sexual immorality is something that is to be fled away from, but a sexually moral lifestyle is freeing. Now, how much is our society sexualized? Well, the media, movies, Internet, social environments, video games. I don't know if you've read up on the metaverse and what's going on in the metaverse. Sexual immorality is ubiquitous. <clears throat> and God tells us to free, uh, flee from that because it is freeing. It frees us from guilt and condemnation. frees us from the pressure, uh, especially kids. You know, as they exit their teens and into their 20s, there's so much pressure there. That pressure is alleviated. It it frees us from the love of the world. It frees us to worship God purely. All of those things are benefits. But let me relate it to this. We're getting at the end here. It's like dieting. I can choose to eat right. I don't want to eat right. I had donuts last week, by the way. And with the the donuts. And and then I, I had a wonderful Mexican meal with guacamole and sour cream and beans and shrimp and oh it's just it was wonderful having all of that and i ate it and i felt guilt you know now i'm gonna put an extra pound on and i could have avocados rice cakes Water? I, I like sugary drinks. I can't help it. I, I like Frappuccinos. I like Pepsi's. And all those sugary drinks are out there. I should just have water. Drink water. And if I don't do that, physically, how do I feel? You know, it's kind of terrible. The sexual morality is the same way. If you get involved in sexual morality, how do you feel? Like, I've got this guilt, this condemnation going on. You can choose to live right, and it requires a sacrifice. But the same thing with dieting. It requires a sacrifice. I don't like this, but I know it's good for me. And I need to be drinking the water and the avocados and all the good stuff and the legumes. And I need to do that and eat red meat in moderation. But I don't want to do that. And it's always a struggle. And that's the way life is. Our flesh says, no, indulge, whether it's the dieting or non-dieting or the sexual morality That's what the world says, and that's the good news. Withhold from yourself, and you say that to the world, okay, sexual immorality, make sure you're living a holy life, make sure, you know, whether it's your diet or whatever you do, do as under the Lord. You mean I got to give up all this stuff? That's the good news? That's how the world sees it. But the good news is we get to avoid the wrath of God. And that's what God has told us to pass on to others. He finally says now about brotherly love, we do not need to write you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. So it's flee sexual morality and brotherly love. They're already doing it. This is the word um, phileo where we get Philadelphia, the brotherly love. And then finally, the good citizen down to verse 12 will end there. And in fact... You do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. That's the third time he talks about not being a leech. Twice for ministers and once here for everybody else. So we're to be employed. We're not to be busybodies. We're not to be obnoxious. It's like, mind your own business. And there are people who don't do that, people who just want to talk and communicate and find out the dirt and what's going on and they're not really working and they're not working hard. They like to chit-chat more. They like the water cooler sessions. They like the long lunches, all of that, arrive late and leave early. And God says, no, don't do that. Be a good citizen. And we've already gone through the employer, the employee thing when we covered the last little epistle that we went through. And so this is God's encouragement to us. All of these things, eight things to look for in false teachers, 12 things to look for in a faithful minister, four things that are the natural progression when receiving and apprehending the gospel. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. The wrath of God is here. Three things Paul desires for the Thessalonians and three areas of encouragement. All of that is in there, and you could take each one of those and do a whole separate study on each one of those. There's so much information here. My prayer for you guys is that you're able to dive into the scriptures, see this stuff. It would motivate you to love God even more for what he has done, especially how he has removed us from the wrath of God. Next week, we're going to be getting into the rapture. Uh, that is in chapter 4. So let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing on your word in our study. As we constantly look for insights, how we're to live and remind ourselves of what you require for us. I would ask that you would, as was in the book here, strengthen us. That we might do your will in all areas. That we might be strengthened emotionally, physically and spiritually That we may continue to do your will, not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of others around us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Please stand.